following program is not ashamed of the gospel and is about to tell you the truth. The temptation was the same. What was Satan's temptation? To give to the Lord the kingdoms of the world without the cross, right? The crown without the cross, the kingdom without the cross. Bow down to me and I'll give you all those things. The devil is still saying that and he's saying it to evangelicals. You can avoid the offense. You can avoid the hostility. You can avoid the persecution. You can adjust the message. And you can have the kingdom without the cross. You can have the crown without the cross. This is the most devastating rebuke that ever came out of the lips of the Lord toward a disciple. You have taken up Satan's cause. You are in partnership with the devil when you think there's going to be a crown without a cross. When you think you're going to accomplish the purpose of advancing the name of Christ through the gospel without suffering. Everything that could be identified under the term pragmatism is designed to eliminate the suffering. And our Lord says, you're a stumbling block to me. Peter means stone. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter goes from a stone to a rock to a stumbling stone. If you want to get in the way of the purposes of God, take up the devil's cause to advance the kingdom without the conflict, to advance the kingdom without the suffering, to advance the kingdom without the cross. Life matters, and the issues in life matter because they affect how we live our lives. In this podcast, Pastor Walt McFadden thinks out loud about truth and discerns how it is being applied to everyday life. Thinking Out Loud podcast is a production of City View Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Pastor Walt, your series in 1 Timothy has been really delightful. It's taught, I think, the church a lot of things about order. And isn't that what you say First and Second Timothy and Titus is all about? It's order. What do you mean by that? I try to start every sermon with that question. What is the theme of First, Second Timothy and Titus? Just part of my way of teaching people how to study the Bible. Each book has a specific theme to it. And of course, I get silence every Sunday. I think they <laughs> must have picked up on it by now after six months. But It is about order. There's false teachers in the church. The church is out of order. Now it's time to bring it back into order. Now you talked about this Sunday about doctrine. And I've had some problems with doctrine, even though I know doctrine is the value of the church. It's the foundation for what we believe. I get that. But are there not doctrines that are not biblical, that people practice and teach? I mean, how do you define or discern between what is a biblical doctrine that we should follow and one that is not? Oh, that's a great question. I heard a really good illustration recently. Somebody said doctrine is sort of like you enter a building and you've got this long hallway and you've got rooms on each side of the hallway and each of those rooms represents some pet doctrine. But as long as you stay in the hallway, the main thing, then the church is okay. It's when we begin to build a movement or denomination around something like, for example, healing is debated in the church today. 
I think it's clear in the scripture that God did not intend for healing to end with the death of the apostles. But when you begin to talk about doctrine in a manner where you're saying this person died of cancer because they didn't have faith, then you're straying off. So I get what you're saying. Doctrine is teaching. What are we teaching in the church? And a lot of what we're teaching is self-help, become a better person. The doctrine should stay focused on Christ and more specifically, the cross of Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, we all have talked about many times on this particular podcast about like the prosperity gospel. And it is that kind of thing that actually does, I think, harm to the body of Christ because there's no really biblical precedent for the kind of prosperity that they preach today. So those are the kinds of things we have to be careful with. You said something that is very, I think, probably the most seminal thing teaching that you've come up with since I've known you, since we've been doing this podcast. And that is that every problem in the church is a discipleship problem. I mean, wow. I mean, that's really insightful. But how do you justify it? Is that really true? I believe it is. We're humans. We're sinful by nature. We're still learning to walk out our faith with Christ. And take, for example, the, an issue of division in the church or disunity. Jesus required in his teaching to his disciples that you always forgive. And I hear people saying all the time, I'm not going to forgive. I don't have to forgive. You don't have to let this person back into your life and, tr- and entrust your secrets to them anymore. However, you must forgive. That's a discipleship problem. So if we think about discipleship this way, and I've outlined this many times in our podcast, that you have a teacher and you have a learner, and the teacher has a specific set of teaching, and the learner is to hear, listen, to obey, and to repeat the teaching of the teacher. And that's how teaching is to be passed down through the church. Now, I'm in a teacher-disciple relationship with the congregation. I am discipling in them into relationship with Jesus. And we don't understand the culture in which Jesus lived. There was no option to debate or to change the teaching of the the master. You follow this person exactly. It'd be the same concept as you think about a culture like Jesus where you didn't have college, you didn't have high school. You grew up and you learned a trade. Your father was a blacksmith, now you're going to be a blacksmith. Your father was a farmer, now you're going to be a farmer. Your teacher is Jesus. Now you're going to walk like Jesus. And the goal of discipleship is Christ-likeness. So all the problems that we have in the church stems from not being Christ-like, not walking in the image of Christ, not understanding who we are in Christ. Look at everything that Jesus has done for us and all that we have. It's paramount that people today understand the gospel, and I really don't think they do understand the gospel. Well, you said something earlier which kind of you know, piqued my attention. And that has to do with today, a lot of the messages in the church is about becoming a better you. And that's not discipleship. That's uh, psychology or a lot of it's like behavior modification. That's not discipleship per se. I mean, we're following Jesus and he's changing us. We're not changing ourselves into a better image. He's changing us into his image. There's a big difference there. So how did the church go from, you know, talking about Christ and the cross and discipleship to now this behavior modification stuff that they're into? I mean, how did we get here? It sells. <laughs> yeah, it sells. It's profitable. Okay. 
Wow, that's a it's marketable. Okay, it's fluff. It doesn't challenge me. It just says I'm wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I look at my own life. I have come to the point where I have learned to love myself. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with that. God created me, gave me a specific set of gifts. But what I want to to praise and I want to glorify in my life is look what God has done with me. Mm-hmm. I was introverted, quiet, shy, fearful, and God has made me bold and God has given me the ability to lead. And I say, look what God has done in my life. Mm-hmm. And so we're missing so much because we just keep thinking, you know, um, what's wrong with me? Why don't people like me? Why don't I have any friends? It's because nobody's attracted to you. What they would need to be attracted to is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus is uh, pretty attractive. Somebody said to me, I was making the comment about one of the young men in the church, and I said, I'm just amazed. I don't understand why so many young men like to follow me. I'm not a physically imposing person or a particularly good-looking person or super intelligent or athletic like our society goes for. I said this one particular young man thinks I walk on water, and the person says to me, what they are really attracted to is the person in you that can walk on water. Mm. Speaking of Jesus. That's nice. That's, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's great. I well, hope I project Christ. I hope I portray Christ. And the discipleship aspect, too, is you think about something like where the disciples are looking at Jesus and they're observing him pray. And they say, teach us how to pray. And then Jesus teaches them how to pray. We don't teach people how to pray, how to talk to God, how to listen to God. And that's the heart of the issue is that the whole reason Jesus reason Jesus came was to restore that intimate relationship that we can have with God. It's all through Jesus. So I keep finding more and more in my walk with Jesus, the gospel is the simplest message in the world, but it is the most complex message in the world because there are so many things to offer that we don't talk about in the church that I can have a face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. Mm. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Last week in our Spanish-speaking service, four people gave their life to Christ. And I said, if, if, if I'm thinking right, some of you have come out of a Catholic background. And I want you to know for the first time in your life, you can talk directly to God. Mm. You don't need a priest. So don't think that you have to have me or you have to have another one of the elders or a priest present. You can now talk to God because you are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I would imagine that's quite revelational to them. I'm what, sure it's, When you yes. were told that the fact that you had to go to Mass or you had to talk to a priest to get your sins forgiven and so forth. You know, discipleship is not scientific. It's organic. That's what you said. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be organic? How are you defining that? I'm not supposed to use the word in the definition, but going back to the the opposite is scientific. We want everything in the church to be, just tell me what I need to know, Pastor. Mm-hmm. Just give me the information. Yeah, the bullet points. And let me go home yeah. and let me just do these few things. And I hope that none of them cause any inconvenience in my life. The gospel should cause tremendous inconvenience in our life. It should turn our world upside down. We always admire people who leave everything, sell what they have, go overseas, bring the gospel to some remote part of the world, and never realizing that all of us are called to that kind of surrender. Not everybody is called to go all over the world to a remote place and bring the gospel, but we are still called 
to total surrender in Jesus Christ. And we're stubborn people. We are uh, rebellious people. We're like the people of the Old Testament. And God is constantly saying to them, you're stubborn, you're rebellious, but I still love you. I still extend my grace to you. And our relationship with Jesus is not a science. And sometimes I get so impatient with people, and particularly my sons, and I think, I just wish they were so more on fire for God. And then God reminds me, where where were you when you were their age? Mm -hmm. I don't want to go back one minute in my life because my life with Jesus has become so exciting and so fulfilling because I understand so much about Christianity that I didn't understand before, which is that personal relationship with Jesus. It's an interesting uh, phrase you use about surrender. You said that, you know, that's how we are to come before God. What does that look like? I mean, you're a pastor. You're preaching to several hundred people every Sunday. I mean, how do you know when somebody's surrendered? I mean, what what comes out of that? Mm, That's a good question. The first thing that comes to my mind is what is the fruit of their life? Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. What kind of fruit is a person bearing in their walk with Christ? Does it does it always wind up in conflict? Does it always wind up failing? Does it always wind up coming to some head, to, to some disagreement? What What is the, the fruit in their life? You and I are now together experiencing what we might call being wronged uh, in, in this experience that you and I have been involved with for the last few months. And if I was a little bit younger, I would be holding on to this. I would be fighting for my honor, my reputation. And I know that I've come to the point in my walk with Christ where I'm not going to do that in this particular situation. I'm going to surrender it to the will of God and trust him that he will preserve my reputation and my honor. It's a big step for me. I wouldn't have been like that a long time ago. It's a consistent process of becoming more like Jesus and being willing to really think in depth. I'm in a place in my life, in my walk with Jesus, where I'm really taking time to think more in depth about phrases that you see in the scripture, like be blameless. Well, I'm not blameless, Mm. but that's a goal. Be holy as I am holy. I'm not holy. And then what does that mean? What does it define? This is where I'm talking about every problem in the church is a discipleship problem. Based on what Jesus said, based on what the gospel is, is that the pattern of your life? Are you living out the gospel? Are you just kind of picking and choosing like a buffet? I like this. I like, I don't like that. I like this part of it. It's a very American way of receiving and and working out the gospel. But Jesus has to, your question was about full surrender. Jesus has to have complete control of my life. I wish that I had fully surrendered to Jesus when I first accepted him. But again, we're stubborn and rebellious people, and I'm still in the process all through my life of seeing new areas where I'm not fully surrendered to Jesus. You know, I have always had a difficult time with the Pharisees of Matthew 23 because there they had religious character. They knew the law. They knew the scriptures, Pastor Walt. They were in him all the time. They were quoting them and they were quoting the law. And yet it wasn't godly character because they didn't know God, right? So if people are studying the Bible and they're getting this religious character down, 
you know, even even to the point of maybe even being a little legalistic, that really isn't godly character. That isn't discipleship. That isn't changing your you know your DNA more or less into the things of Christ. How how do you handle that? What do you say to people? You know, read the Bible, but it's not. You know, you've got to be changed. There's got to be something going on in that relationship with God and the Bible that really makes a difference in your life. And if it isn't, you should be asking some serious questions. Well, it's the whole point of the sermon from last Sunday is that the doctrine has to go from your head to your heart, and there has to be an outworking of doctrine. How does this doctrine affect my life? If I really, truly believe it, it's interesting you bring up the Pharisees because I've always said that the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That must have been a total shock to the disciples because they thought, who is more righteous than the Pharisees? Mm -hmm. But it was a false righteousness. Mm -hmm. And it comes to my mind, the verses where Jesus said, you call me Lord, Mm -hmm. Lord, and, and do not do what I do. And then later on, there's the judgment. And they would say, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles? Did we not feed the poor? Jesus says, I never knew you. That's the heart of the issue. Do you know Jesus? Are you walking in Jesus' footsteps, not in the footstep of some religious system? You use the word ekklesia, which is a Greek word for the called out ones. Why did you do that? I mean, you were trying to make a case that discipleship is more than just coming to church or even reading your Bible or praying. You said we are the ecclesia. We're called out. What does that mean? Well, we're just like Peter, James, John, Andrew, any of the disciples. We're just like the rich young ruler who you know, said, I will not follow you, Jesus. The man who had to go bury his father, the list goes on and on. There's a call. Jesus has called us to follow him. We can accept that. We can reject that. But if we're in the church, we've obviously accepted the call. Mm -hmm. So we are called out Mm -hmm. into relationship with Jesus, and we're called specifically to follow him. Discipleship is following Jesus and aiming for Christ-likeness. I want to be like my rabbi, as the disciples call them, or my teacher. Mm -hmm. Jesus is my discipler. He is the model. You know, you had talked about something in your sermon about authority, and you used the Roman emperor Nero. And you said, you know, we have to start honoring the authorities that have been set in place by God over us. But what happens, Pastor, if that particular ruler, president, uh, congressperson, whoever it might be, who is making laws, are making laws that are evil? I mean, how do we, how do we balance this honor you talked about and the fact that we are to expose evil and stand up and push back that which is dark. I mean, that I had a hard time trying to wrestle with and, and put together. What would you say to that? I'm wrestling with it right now mm-hmm. because the laws that are being passed in our nation are not godly laws. They're not God uh, the laws of holiness. At the same time, I want to make sure that I project Christ's likeness in all that I do. So my reaction is not to say, you think about our current president, I don't agree with most, if not all, of his policies. I just don't agree with them. I don't think they're godly. I don't think they help the family. I don't think they protect life in the womb. The list goes on. I don't want to 
portray hate, vitriol. There is a place for anger, but it's got to be righteous anger. And the, the line is when the government, or the emperor in this case, tells me that I have to disobey God. So the disciples, the, Peter is the one who's writing those words, honor the emperor. And I, I thought about that because I had spent the last few weeks meditating on First Peter and really tripping over that passage that says, honor the emperor. And it's probably the same emperor, Nero, who crucified Peter upside down and beheaded Paul. So he's talking about the very man who's going to sentence him to death. It's a subtle nuance, but I'm beginning to understand it. And one of the things that opened up my eyes, I mentioned in the sermon, was that I had communication with my representative over my community. She's Muslim. I don't want to go in there and blast her. I don't want to tear her down. I don't want to call her names. I want to say, how can we come alongside you and help and work together? And we found common ground on the number one issue in Minneapolis, which is crime. Talking about how thankful she is for this phone call, because she doesn't ever get phone calls like Mm -hmm. that. It's a totally different approach. Now, if she were to come and say, your church has to shut down, Mm -hmm. I would disobey. But it doesn't mean that I have to stop honoring her as as a leader and saying, I'm praying for you. God has chosen you for you to be here. There's just those few things in the life of Jesus where he just stayed out of politics and kept the emphasis on the cross and kept the emphasis on the gospel. And that's what I want. I want in my life. Mm-hmm. I want I want to I want to be a shining example of who Jesus is. It's a it's a fine balance. It definitely is. And um and depending on where you're, you're falling on what side of the, the coin you're, you know, you, uh, you make emphasis on. But one of the reasons I stopped watching the news because I would get so angry at what I was seeing, and I, I thought, well, you know, I'm not in control of this, so I've got to stop watching that. That is, you know, prodding me to be so angry all the time because of the policies and so forth. So there's some lot of truth to what you're saying here. One of the points you brought, and I never thought about this before was that the false church always aligns itself with the state or the government. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I should have defined that just a little bit more. I would say it aligns itself with the world, and the world is represented by worldly government. And I'm thinking about places like the communist bloc nations where the church can't preach anything of the gospel and call for loyalty to Jesus first over government the the church exists in China. There is a church in Russia, places like that, but it always has to align itself with the government. It's the only way that it can survive or be protected. And the other way is even in our culture, I say to our church, in our church, false in our neighborhood, false churches outnumber true churches. And we're a very liberal part of the country here in Minneapolis, particularly South Minneapolis, but we are outnumbered. And the way that the other churches are surviving is to align themselves with the world, which is to give up the true gospel message of holiness and of righteousness and the whole purpose for which Jesus died, which was for our sins. You ended the sermon on Sunday rather uniquely because you talked about if our church wasn't in existence in this neighborhood, would anyone miss us? That's a very good question. But then you went on to say, that if this postmodern generation actually came back to church, which 
you know, sometimes people will say, well, let's go, you know, our kids are getting older, we should come back to church. You ask the question, what would they find? What would they find, Pastor? I hope when they come to City View Church that they're going to find a message of truth and love, and there hasn't been a balance in the church. It's either you get the love only or you get the truth only. And I don't think people, I think people are looking for answers. But what we're, what we're aiming for is the balance of truth and spirit in the church. We are going to give the truth. We're not going to compromise. But at the same time, we want it to be a loving place and a place where sinners aren't necessarily going to feel comfortable, but they're not going to feel like we hate them when they walk in. And I think back on the 80s, there was a lot of hatred and a lot of vitriol toward the gay community and a lot of things that were said about AIDS as a judgment from God. And, you know, God didn't create AIDS. AIDS is just a consequence of an immoral life, whether you're gay or straight. That's another topic. But um, a lot of things were said in the church to drive people away rather than engaging them. I want to have that balance of truth and love in the same church. Well, Pastor Walt McFadden, thanks for thinking out loud, and uh, we'll rejoin with you next week on another podcast about your sermon as you think out loud. God has everything under control. There's nothing happening today that he hasn't foreseen. No matter what may be happening in your life or the society in which we live, he is still in control. With God, always in control means that he will see you through whatever you're facing. Trust God and see what he does in your favor today. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today, and please let us know your thoughts on our topic. We want to hear your feedback and your concerns as you think out loud. Please visit us at cvcmpls.org. That's cvcmpls.org.